Welcome to this week's episode of The Square. I am really excited for a couple of different reasons, not the least of which Tanya Lee White is here co-hosting <laughs> with me today. Um, we've done nearly 20 episodes since yeah. the start of the pandemic, which is a pretty cool accomplishment. Um, and we are kicking off a brand new series called Curious Conversations with fill in the blank. So it's basically where we're going to be talking with experts in a variety of different fields um, like the chief science officer from Hypergiant um, and, and just kind of really cool fields that you wouldn't normally associate with architecture and design but looking at where those lines blur and kind of overlap and how we can learn from each other. Um, so as I mentioned uh, our first Curious conversation with Christina Libby is happening today, and she is the Chief Science Officer for Hypergiant. Tell me a little bit about Hypergiant. Yeah, so, and I'm sure, Christina, you'll dive into a little bit more detail, but Hypergiant is based here in DFW. Uh, they're an emerging AI company, and they focus on space, defense, and critical infrastructure. And so before we kind of start diving into AI and its applications, I think it would be great if, Christina, you could just tell us, you know, a little bit about what your day-to-day -day looks like as a chief science officer. That's not a, that's title, a cool that, title yeah, that I hear very often. Um, so yeah, just kind of tell us what's your day-to-day -day like and um, what's it like at Hypergiant? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, it's really fun to be your very first guest. So um, I will try and set the bar um, somewhere for everyone else who comes after. Um, as a chief science officer, I have a, a really interesting job. So a lot of my job is focused on what is happening in the world and not just in the world of science, but sort of in the world contextually in general and trying to figure out what are areas for us to think about. Are there new technologies that are coming that we haven't seen before? Are there new areas of um, of technology that are sort of bubbling up in an interesting way where maybe we can apply artificial intelligence or something else that we as a company have expertise in um, and scale really rapidly in that area. Uh, sometimes I talk about it like being a bit of a, like a puzzle solver, right? So we know that we have some things that work together here and we have some really good skills as a company and then trying to look at what is happening in the world and figuring out where maybe our puzzle piece goes in um, in an unexpected way that creates a lot of opportunity for our business. And so what that means on a day-to-day -day basis is um, I read a lot, uh, constantly sort of all the books and the news and, and what's happening. And I, I meet a lot of people and I have a lot of conversations and try and figure out what other people are excited about and, and what they, um, they think that's coming is interesting. Um, and, and also what maybe people are worried about. So what's happening in the world, what are the security challenges or the social challenges or the environmental challenges that technology is going to step into to try and address? Hence the super cool library behind you, <laughs> <laughs> which, which we were commenting about how well color organized it was before yes, the show kudos. started. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you got into this, because that it seems like uh, I mean, again, it seems like such a cool job. How is that something that you kind of step into? Yeah, so for me, it's been a really rather strange career path. So academically, I have a master's degree in international security, and it really focused on genocide and, and sort of broad security challenges. And then I left that sort of academic setting, and I didn't go into a traditional job in the field. So I 
worked in a, a bunch of different spaces. I worked in PR for a while. I worked in marketing. Um, and then I spent a number of years really kind of working at the intersection of high tech and different types of storytelling. And I just became really familiar with technical things. So I'm not a scientist by trade. I don't have a science degree. What I do have is an ability to understand really complicated scientific topics and figure out how that intersects with business needs and, and also with sort of broader cultural and social trends. And, and I think that's just um, about not being scared of technology, which I think a lot of people are, right? We have this like, oh, that's too complicated. I, I'm not gonna take the time to understand it. But ultimately, um, all science should be something that we can sort of understand in small sentences or, or even sound bites, ultimately. Um, because it's it's about our lives and how we live and how we operate. And so I think um, developing sort of a familiarity with that led me into this opportunity where I get to talk to really brilliant scientists all the time, but I don't actually have to be in a lab with like a pipette or, um, you know, some kind of microscope looking at things every day, which I, do, I don't have the temperament for. So it was there, because one of the things that we always ask the guests is, you know, kind of about their personal why. So was there a point in which you knew like science or humanity was going to be the thing that you really was going to fulfill you in life? I don't know that I think it's that simple. So for me, um, this is a, it's a really interesting question because so right now I'm, um, I'm really obsessed with this question about why are we human, right? Like what are we here doing together? and why and what is driving that and and how do we create a unified vision of the future that isn't dystopian right so most of the time when we're talking about the future now you hear all of these views of like ai super lords and the world is falling apart and it's like i live in new york city right now right and like everyone and their brother has written an article about the death of new york city <laughs> and you're just like okay so what are we going to do here what is the world we want to make and that question I think is what's really driving me at the moment. And I think one of the avenues to answer that question is looking at things like science and technology. Now, there's a bunch of other avenues that we have to undertake at the same time. Um, and so I don't know that I find science fulfilling. I don't even know that I find that the answer to this question will be fulfilling, but I find myself fulfilled by being engaged in sort of an active dialogue mm -hmm. about what are we trying to do here? And what is the purpose of that? And, and why do we want to engage in it? I was thinking this morning that, um, you know, we, we look at so many boxes to put people in, like this person is a creative or this person is a scientist or an engineer. And I want to be a creator, right? Like I want to be involved in sort of this like dynamic expression of, of creating a world and a society that I can be really proud of. And that I think would be fulfilling. I also, um, I don't know, I think I think in decades and decades. And so I don't also don't wanna be fulfilled right now, right? Like I wanna be hungry for a really yeah. long time. I, I don't wanna retire at 40 and just sort of look at the world in contentment for another 50 years. Like I want to be constantly seeking out what can be fulfilling. I love that. It's, it's, it's really about like the journey. It's mm -hmm. about, it's about the struggle. And I, I think that's, I, 
That may be one of the best answers we've ever had. Agreed. <laughs> um, Trying to set the bar. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so you've taught at NYU. You've taught at uh, University of Florida. Go Gators. Go Gators. Proudly wearing my Go Gators shirt. <laughs> um, you've worked at Microsoft. Why? How did you get interested in the field of artificial intelligence? Why? Why this field? The cutting edge of science is a really interesting place to be. Right, so um, when I was at Microsoft, I got to spend a lot of time with the research team at Microsoft. It's called, it's, they're in Building 99, and they're thinking about quantum computing. They're thinking about settling on Mars. They're thinking about sort of all of these really big questions. And what I realized is that so many of us are in reactive professions, right? Where we're thinking about, um, you know, how do we, respond to sort of what is impacting us rather than helping to set the agenda for what the future is. And so I realized that like I wanted to be there. I wanted to be thinking about what was happening next and, and what was happening in the future as we move forward. And I think that that sort of desire is is what pulled me um, into this. I was at a conference a, a year or so ago with I had a lot of designers from RISD, and I had developed a really wonderful friendship there with this woman named Megan. And she was like, your mind is just like a speculative thinker. Like, she's like, you just want to imagine, like, what is possible in the world. And that more clearly than anything, I think, sums me up, right? Like, I, I do. I just want to be like, what would be possible? Like, wouldn't it be interesting if there were dragons? Like, what would that look like? But also, you know, like, what would it look like if all of the streets in New York City no longer had cars on them, right? Like, what what would that look like? And what kind of future technology would we need to get there? And, and that, I think, is the most exciting thing about stepping into any of these emerging technology fields is you get to help design the direction of where it's going to go. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, love that. <laughs> um, and we have spent some time um, when we were preparing for our curiosity report, looking at these technologies like AI, we geeked out over quantum computing. I mean, kind of a little trepidation dipping our toes into something like that. Um, but just, I think what you were saying really resonates with us is that we want to be a part of how um, that technology, the direction it goes in rather than being in reactive mode. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of what architects and designers do are these kind of long-term plans and visions, you know, airports and cities and these massive um, pieces of infrastructure. Um, and you kind of uh, hinted at this earlier, and so I'm glad that we can kind of step back into this question, is that there's a lot of, um, AI is a loaded word. Um, there's dystopian science fiction futures that are often associated with it. Um, but what exactly, let, let's just like step back, like what is artificial intelligence if you had to say it in kind of a, like an elevator speech? Um, and like what are some of the challenges around it? Yeah. Right now when we talk about AI, what we're largely talking about is machine learning, which is around data prediction, right? So it's using data to make predictions in the future. What artificial intelligence is, and I'm sort of using a little bit of air quotes because it's like where we want it to go or where the theory is or where the desire to pull it towards, is this idea that we create something that is sentient, right? So it is like thinking and aware and, um, and possesses the qualities, sentience, of, of what we think makes someone alive. Um, and, and that's the, 
the disconnect between sort of the Hollywood version of AI, which is like sentient AI overlords, like that's coming and where we are right now, which is like a computer can recognize a pattern enough to make like and really, really fast to make predictions about what's going to happen. And there's a big difference between predictions and sentience. Um, I suffered a brain injury in August, a traumatic brain injury. And so I had a concussion for a number of months and now I have this, this post-traumatic brain issue. And what was very interesting is going to all of these doctors and realizing that like we don't understand how the human brain works, right? So like I sustained a massive blow to the front of my head and the doctors are like, well, it could present in all of these different fashions, right? And so we talk about something like sentient artificial intelligence and like, yes, we don't need to understand how the brain works in order to get to something that is thinking and feeling, but I think the idea that we can get to something that totally replicates the human brain um, without us understanding truly how the human brain works is incredibly hubristic, right? And so. The timeline for getting to sentient artificial intelligence is um, is kind of all over the board. And there's sort of general artificial intelligence, which is like it works at the same level as us. And there's like super um, sentient artificial intelligence, which is like it is better than us at all things. And the timeline for those things are, are all over the board and are largely dependent on sort of national strategy around technology development. So. In the US, we don't have a national strategy for that, but China very much does have a national strategy and they are working against a specific timeline and they intend to get there first, right? And so when we, right now in the US, we're largely being driven by sort of like disparate technology companies that are looking at ways to monetize um, the, the evolution of this technology, which is, is interesting and compelling, but it's not being happened in sort of this unified fashion against a specific goal. And so where we get to, is what happens at any point where you go on an adventure without a specific goal and you like end up wherever you end up as opposed to being like, I'm gonna go on an adventure and I'm gonna hike a mountain and I'm gonna go whitewater rafting and I'm gonna end up in Utah, right? And so we are on this sort of randomized path in the US right now. Um, and where we get to I think is a big question and when is, um, dependent on so many different factors that it's hard it's hard to make predictions about where that goes. So it sounds like there are a variety of challenges when you're working in a really cutting edge, innovative field. And we imagine you encounter some pretty um, complex problem solving um, because you're just in this space that is unchartered and unknown. Um, and you're literally creating things that the world has never seen before. And yeah. so, you know, while this can be a blessing, it can also be a curse. How do you kind of, how do you help your teams and your coworkers move through these kind of foggy, complicated processes? Um, it's interesting. At Hypergiant, a lot of the progress we make, a lot of the ideas we come up with are literally out of the head of our CEO. So Ben Lamb, who runs Hypergiant, is an incredibly creative, um, really kind of cutting edge thinker about intersection points, right? So he's not an ex, well, at this point he is an expert in AI, but he didn't come into this being just like, a, you know, an engineer with just this like, you know, crazy academic degrees in any sort of topic that 
that were driving the technology development, but he's a real consumer of culture and um, ideas and science. And so he's constantly asking, like, how do we put this idea with this idea with this idea? And what does it look like? And so um, that then becomes a question of just unique problem solving. And I think we really have this belief that like nothing is impossible, right? So. So many people are like, oh, that's an impossible thing to do. And they just sort of like cross their arms and they step back and they don't even try it. And I would say that we as a company like don't even believe in that mentality. Like we don't believe in something being impossible. We believe in there being like, it could take a really long time, right? Like that's an idea that takes <laughs> 20 years or that's an idea that costs $50 billion or that's an idea that requires international cooperation in order to do that. And then we ask ourselves the questions of like, are we committed to this idea? And if we're committed to it, even though it takes 50 years or it costs $50 billion or we need 50 heads of state to agree to it, then it's just a matter of like, how many different ways can we make that happen? So $50 billion is an accessible amount of money for the right idea and the right level of cooperation and if the world needs it badly enough, right? Or getting all of those heads of state to agree to something you can do for the right idea in the right time. I think the big thing to that kind of problem solving is just like not seeing hurdles as something to stop you, but seeing hurdles as like a puzzle that you're trying to figure out a way around. And, And that's exciting, right? It's like everyone comes across a bunch of roadblocks and what you do with that roadblock is I think a big signifier of your personality. And I would say we as a company have this cultural personality that's like, hmm, roadblock. Like, are we gonna walk around it? Are we gonna jump over it? Are we going to build a time machine and go back in time and find a different way, right? Like, you know, there's there's a way around something. And, and I think to kind of encourage that in people is about creating a culture of that that sort of method of thinking right which is yeah it's hard and it's weird and it's strange and it's going to feel uncomfortable but like we're going to try and figure out a way around it um and and to do that is i think just a, it's an ideation question it's just like encouraging creativity and diversity of ideas and like letting the weird ideas stick in the room um and I think that that's how we get through those those hard to solve challenges. So I love that there's this kind of intersection slash blending of creativity and science, right? I mean, because those things, are, I think so often in conversations, they are spoken about in silos and you guys have like blown those silos up and everything kind of mingles together. <laughs> um, so I, there's actually two questions here. The first is, is, is there, are there practical things that you guys do when you hit those roadblocks? You're like, okay, this is how we're gonna tackle this roadblock from a practical standpoint? No, I, I mean, it's not, we don't have like a process, right? It's not like first we whiteboard things out and then we do X, Y, and Z other thing. And that can be really hard for people, right? Like we don't have an established process. And I think if we have a process, it's just like comfort with chaos. Yeah. Um, and. And, and that is, is how we operate, right? And that is like a facet of our corporate culture, which is, especially because we're still quite young, right? We're three years old and that 
in the industry we work in, in a space that is constantly changing and looking at places like outer space where we're still just like, what does that look like? Are we ever going to Mars, right? Like it's, it's changing. What it really requires is just comfort in a chaotic environment. Um, I grew up one of six children. And so I grew up in a household where like, if you found a quiet corner, good luck. It was probably quiet for like when you got there yeah. and then no longer ever again, right? And so I had to learn how to function in like a, a place where six kids of, you know, 15 years between us needed different things at all times. We had two dogs. We had three cats. Like it was just crazy in yeah. a way, but also this functioning organism, right? Yeah. And everyone was able to meet their needs or at least attempt to meet their needs or work together to meet their needs within that space. And so I often think of a company that is growing up in the same way that you have this really chaotic house and in your home, like processes for solving problems feels unnatural, right? It feels totally. so corporate to instill that instead of trying to instill like comfort within a situation of, that is constantly fluctuating and bending and morphing. I, I would say though, if there's one thing that I have really come to in the past like year or two years about those situations, it's that you have to do your personal work first, right? Like become a person who can have hard conversations with people become a person who's comfortable dealing with other people's emotions, become a person who understands that your personal reaction to a moment is not necessarily the thing that that moment needs. And then figuring out when that's figured out, sort of every scenario becomes a lot um, more, more just manageable right? Yeah. Because you're so comfortable with who you are and that I really try and encourage that in the people who work for me and the people I work around, which is that like, if we do our self work first, then our collective work is just made so much easier because we're all really secure in, in who we are. And then, and then ideas are just ideas and rejection of ideas. That's not a rejection of me. Right. It's just a rejection of a thing I threw out into the universe and, and maybe it doesn't work right now, but that doesn't say anything bad about who I am. So for that to work, obviously there, there has to be a lot of trust, which I think is a really unique and kind of um, lightning in a bottle thing that um, it's something when, when you have it, you know you have it. And when you don't have it, you know you don't have it. What happens though, when you try to translate that into something that at least at this point doesn't have feelings like AI. Like for example, how can you take creativity as a challenge? You know, I think AI a lot of times can, it, there is a straightforward pass to how it can do recognizing patterns and repetitive tasks and that kind of thing. But can you teach AI to be creative and collaborative when you, you're working on a different level with something that may, not, may or may not have trust? You know what I mean? So I have a dog. I have a giant dog. Uh, he's 100 pounds, a 100 pound sheep doodle. So he like looks like Nana from Peter Pan and sort of like <laughs> acts like the dog from Scooby-Doo. And I trust this dog, right? But this dog and I don't, we don't have the same language and we don't communicate the same way. And the reason that I trust the dog is because I have developed a relationship, right? I have like trained it to work for me and mm -hmm. with me. And, and so we have this really mutually beneficial relationship. And my dog goes everywhere, right? Like 
at every cafe, my dog rides the subway, I fly with my dog, because I'm a, you know, I have a really close relationship. But can I teach my dog to be creative? I don't know, but what I can do with my dog is give it a different set of challenges to solve at different times. So like I recently started hiking, and when my dog is attempting to hike or go through sort of like a difficult challenge, I don't help him. I like try and wait and see how he can figure it out. But I do expose him to these instances, right? And so here we're talking about something like AI. I think we're opening up a bunch of challenges around how do we take technology and try and teach it to do different things. So in the same way that like we would teach a dog or, or an animal to do something, right? And like, can we increase the creative problem solving ability of that animal by exposing it to different things? So outside of Hypergine, I do a bunch of other stuff. And one of the things is um, I paint, right? And so I was approached by someone to do a, a painting collaboration recently that was focused on, um, so she has a, a machine learning um, tool, right? AI, as we'll call it colloquially, um, that has ingested a bunch of data sources around female painters and then has made projections of new images that should be pleasing based on what those painters did. And then she approached a bunch of different artists to interpret what the bot did or the art, oh, you know, okay. the AI into yeah. something else that then would be art. And so this has questions, right? Like, did that program she created create art? What is art? Is it being creative or is it pulling off of other people's creativity, mashing them together into something that is somewhat pleasing? I will ask for permission to see if I can send you all the image yeah, that'd that be cool. her tool made. To, and then I... I haven't started working on my submission yet, but it might be interesting for people to see this as well. So I'll send it along. And, um, and, and I think this opens up just like so many questions. So right now, like is a pattern recognition device something that can be creatable? It can solve a problem creatively, but mm -hmm. is creativity a, like a human? only response no i would say there's like lots of animals in the wild that are creative in terms of like where they live or how they organize and there was actually um did anyone read do you remember the author of angels and demons and the oh yeah uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he wrote a book like a couple years ago i forget his name and i'm sorry yeah. it's part Dan of my brown. brain injury i have a hard time with that it's kind Dan of brown, name recall yeah. but he wrote a book about a woman who like trying to create artificial intelligence that was like creative and really human and so he took this like fictional perspective on training artificial intelligence to be oh, to be more creative and like was it capable of creating and and how and where and i think that's also an interesting idea sort of on what happens is we're moving towards, like, as we're moving towards sentient AI, who trains that AI and how they train it and what kind of challenges they train it will dictate what it ends up being like. So in the same way that like, this is a very long answer to your question, but in the <laughs> same way that if someone else trained my dog 
yeah. he would be a very different dog, right? Yeah. Like I have met mean golden retrievers and I'm just like, <laughs> how, how is that possible? Like, what did you do that made that dog mean, right? Whereas like, I think if I was to parent that same golden retriever, it would be so important to me to have a dog that wasn't mean that I would have done everything to combat that. And so it goes back to one of those questions about like who's in the room and technology and why diversity mm. in that room is so important and why, and I mean diversity in terms of gender and ethnicity, but I also mean diversity in terms of thought, which I think goes back to one of the things you talked about, which is science gets a bad rap as not being a creative field. I think it is incredibly creative, but the people who go into science are often divorced from people who go into creative fields. And so, but we need people who have an extreme appreciation of sort of creativity and innovation and all of the different aspects of what makes something um, whole and capable. And so if we think there's going to be a future in which we build a technology that is as smart or smarter than us, then we need to think about developing it not as like breaking through in a science, but I believe as like a parent who is, is challenging and training a child. And like there is so much responsibility that goes into that, that that's why it has to be a cultural conversation. Like we can't rely on technologists alone to be responsible for the future that we want. We need to be all of us actively engaged in, in, in what that future can look like. So I think you bring up some really interesting points about science often being divorced from creativity. Um, you know, and at Corgan, we are architects and designers and we build the built environment. Um, what we've seen um, in the last few decades is this kind of blending of the physical environment with the digital environment. And a simple example of that is like a digital kiosk of, of departures and arrivals at the airport, right? That is the digital environment and the physical environment coming together or a Google Maps interface where you're walking through a city and it's taking into account the physical built environment. Um, how do you think AI can help us uh, kind of develop really seamless user experiences in something like the built environment? Well, I think that's a huge question. Um, there are a lot of different ways to think about that, right? So as we think about a future of artificial intelligence, there you know, our theories that and someday in the future we'll each have our own sort of individualized AI and it will know tons of things about us, right? So it'll know I'm going to go on vacation and I need to buy a new swimsuit and I need to book a hotel room and my personalized artificial intelligence will interact with Macy's and it will interact with Marriott and it will book all of my experience for me without me really having to do anything, right? So there is this interesting interesting way, even when we think about um, sort of traditional uh, marketing practices now, right? Like, you know, how important is a Macy's website in a future where I personally don't search it, but someone search, but like a, 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 like a personalized AI searches that experience for me. It doesn't need visuals and all of this sort of text and data, it's looking for other things, right? I mean, it does actually need all of that information, but not in sort of the layout or the web design that 
we need it to be at now. Or when we talk about something like 5G and we talk about different form factors and information in different places, and how does that become faster? How do we have spaces that know more about us and end in different ways? I, mean, I think one of the things that we spent a bit of time in the fall thinking about in regards to this topic was we thought a lot about um, lunar, like lunar homes. Like what would that look Oh, I was like? hoping like, you would bring up space. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was hoping you would bring up space. Oh, yes. You know, so we, we did this interesting project and we were working with um, a design firm out of uh, the Netherlands called MVDVR. And they put out this book called Barba, which was about um, the space around you. And... And one of the questions that you really have to think about in like a lunar capacity or some place where you are trapped in a space and you can't get out is like, is actually how you pattern your day, right? And so right now, most of us are, well, in a COVID world, it's different. In a pre-COVID and possibly <laughs> post-COVID world, your home's empty for the majority of the day. And then your office is empty from 5 to 9 a.m. That's weird that's a lot of empty space right and so ai can be used for something like recognizing the pattern of how when we live our lives and then offering a different idea of of what that experience should be like like are we moving to an era where our physical home shouldn't be as big or it should be located in a different way or like when we think about something like being on the moon does our space like, what if we could develop a different kind of, like, solution that almost could expand and contract around us, right? And then those two spaces, right, like, if two people came together, the material around them could merge together and create, like, a small room bubble, right? Like, we don't know what that material is like now. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means it's something that we haven't quite figured out yet. And But that idea of, like, what are the patterns for our lives and and how do we want to live them like do i psychologically need my office to be a different place than my home or is that psychology just a holdover from when we were factory workers and that like we needed that distance like now that i'm an information worker am i kind of always thinking about my job and so do i need difference in physical space or how do I pattern my life and, and what could those patterns look like? Like, I just think the interesting thing about the constant sort of changing way that we're working and living at the moment is that we don't know what any of these technologies can do and how in the future. But what we do have the opportunity to say is it's very important to me to have a workspace that is separate from my home space or it's not important to me at all. Like, you know, or I want to be in an urban environment that is very walkable and very green and very engaging, or I want to live on a farm and I don't want to touch any people, and I want a life that, like, works <laughs> in either of those places, right? And then I think that's, like, one of the questions about technology that I think, especially in this sort of, like, design and experience perspective, it's not really about, like, what technology can do it's like what do we want technology to do mm. and then who can build that technology to solve that problem like that that's where it starts to get really exciting is like tell me the weird thing you want right like like what is the weird way you want to live and then it's like who out there is thinking about it and how do we how do we do that how do we bring that to life and try that out and see if that's a more enjoyable way to be human 
it, it starts to do exactly what you were talking about earlier, which is take it from a point of view of, oh, well, that's impossible, to, well, it's just a roadblock. What, what if that wasn't there? How do we get around it? And kind of dream a little bit. Yeah. Like, what if we didn't have houses? Right? Like, like, do I need all of this stuff? Do I need these rows of books behind me? Like, maybe I need them because I have a brain injury. And so I, I need the reference material, right? But like, also maybe I don't if I started to categorize that information in a different way. And if I didn't need a home, like if I didn't need all of this space, mm -hmm. like what, how would I live? Like what, what, what would keep me dry from the rain? Like, what is that organism? Like, and is it an organism, right? Like, could it be like a living thing? And what would that feel like? And like, could that sort of sequester carbon in a different way and use fewer resources? And like, I, like, can it project things on the walls that like, make me feel like I'm in other places. Like there are just all of these sure. questions that I think are so fascinating if we just let ourselves f explore the chance that like it doesn't have to be the way that we see it right now. Well, Christina, this we could have this conversation for hours. <laughs> yes. And I have a Did feeling it. a lot of people would probably <laughs> listen for hours. Um, but uh, what if we, well, have you come back? I can't wait to hear more about the art project. I am super fascinated with that and how that is um, gonna be uh, really an interesting um, example of how AI and creativity are gonna pull together and work and kind of co-mingle. Um, but thank you so much for being with us today. I really, really appreciate it and sharing um, all of your knowledge and, and kind of experience. Tanya, thank you for coming. Of course, anytime. And thank you guys for <laughs> listening. Um, if you were watching the um, video podcast, you'll notice in the description below, we'll have some links. We'll have hopefully uh, some images uh, from Christina, as well as if you were listening on the audio version, make sure you check out the video version uh, to be able to see all of that cool stuff. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye.